Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here again this morning, and uh, it's my privilege uh, once again to open God's Word with you. Uh, for those who are visiting, we are going through a series in the, the book of Acts. We uh, come to a, a reasonably pivotal part of Acts in Acts chapter 9 today, and uh, so I'm excited to, to bring God's Word to you. Let, uh, let's pray before we do so. We're not all prayed out, Russ. Thanks for that. That was absolutely wonderful. Uh, I think it's always good to uh, come before God's throne of grace. And uh, uh, so let's just commit this time uh, together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself uh, through these pages. Father, we thank you that they are a source of inexhaustible joy, knowledge, and comfort. Father, we thank you for the journey as a church we're going through as we have spent time studying uh, this historical book, the Acts of the Apostles. We're so mindful every time we open these pages, we see your hand of blessing as the church grows. As your spirit is outpoured into the hearts of those who place their faith and trust in you, you continue to multiply. And Father, we thank you that multiplication hasn't stopped. We thank you that here in 2016 we are testament to this wonderful fact. That you continue to call us to follow Jesus. We thank you for your spirit that empowers us to do so. We thank you for the spirit that convicts us, refines us, changes us. And Father, we pray as a church that you will continue to change us. So now as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you will convict us where we need conviction. We pray you'll comfort us where we need comfort. We pray you'll encourage us where we need encouragement. We pray this now in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, certain significant events in life, sometimes you can remember. Most times you should remember certain significant events. I'm going to um, share with you one of these events that happened in my life when I was probably about 23. Well, I know I was 23, not probably about 23, but 23. You see, um, I've been married to my lovely wife for close on 26 years. And, and if anyone was ever to ask Julie, well, how did you and Nathan meet? This significant event would be told. You see, we actually met in Sunday school at the age of three. You know, I was, um, I was a page boy at my uh, niece's wedding and I had this really sharp little blue suit with red bow tie. And at the age of three, I know Julie was looking at me. But um, she will testify, no, that is not the fact. It wasn't age three that uh, began the spark of romance in, in our life together. She'll draw to another occasion when I was 23 at a, at a friend's wedding and uh, I happened to also be in a suit that day and uh, it was part of the, the party and unbeknownst to me, Julie was checking me out. 
For some of you, you might find this very disturbing. I understand this, but, but, but this is okay. This is what happens when you're young and foolish, you know. Um, but Julie, she would, if anyone asked her, and you can ask her, but not all at once, but ask her this afternoon, um, what was that like? And she would say, it was like the scales being removed from my eyes. I have seen the light. It's like the experience of Paul on the road to Damascus. Yes, here is the man of my dreams before me and I never knew. Yeah, sure, I'm embellishing a little bit, but that's okay. But she will testify, actually, at that point in time. Uh, our friendship, we'd always been very good friends, but our friendship developed to something deeper as the Lord displayed to one another, hey, this is a wonderful partner for life. So that's what happened. And we come to a similar story today, a very well-known story in the Gospel of Acts, from the Apostles of Acts. I just want to share the context for you as we look at Acts chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, um, please turn to Acts chapter 9. We'll be spending most of our time there looking at uh, the conversion experience of Saul. But just to provide a, a background of where we're at inside this book, you, you know the gospel is spreading. The Lord has poured out His Spirit in Jerusalem and thousands of people are saved and come to faith. The first megachurch is formed from three to 8,000 people in the, in the sight of a couple of days have come to realize that Christ is the Messiah. And they have his indwelling spirit and the community meets and they devote themselves to, to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship and to breaking of bread. They are a locked-in community. They share all things in common for the sake of the gospel. When things get tough, when they're persecuted, what do they do? They get before the throne of grace and they speak to God and say, give us more boldness. Proclaim Jesus. Because persecution was happening. The Jewish elite, the religious leaders, hated Christians. Now I cannot say this strong enough. They absolutely had an abhorrent hate for Jesus the Messiah. And one of the chief proponents of that was this man, as we read in, in Acts chapter 7. Now, Acts chapter 7, as you know, Shabu spoke on this a couple of weeks ago, is the martyrdom of Stephen. He was a man full of the Spirit and full of grace, and he was proclaiming Jesus. And men grabbed hold of his testimony and lied about his testimony before the religious elite and said, we cannot have this happen. And then Stephen delivers one of the most amazing messages in the New Testament, accusing the religious elite of what they actually were. Men who were stiff-necked, men who were uncircumcised in heart and ears, men who were resisting the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that's what had happened right through the whole nation of Israel as he outlaid Acts chapter 7. And men who persecuted every prophet and killed them, and now they've killed the righteous one, the Messiah. That's Acts 
And then they they cannot handle this and they just drag Stephen outside the city and they stone him. They stone him. Stephen in his grace and mercy calls out to God on their behalf and says, have mercy on them. He cried out in a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. Only a change of God in a person's heart can cause someone to cry out like that. He fully understood God's grace and mercy. He fully understood the religious leaders' indifference and hatred, but yet he could still fall on his knees and pray for his enemies. Can you and I do that? Can you and I do that? According to God's word, we can, because when we're full of the Spirit, we can. Are we willing to, is the question. At the center of this is a man. Chapter 7, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We read down in in chapter 8, and Saul comes into prominence yet again. Because it's told us that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. 8 verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. Saul was hell-bent on destroying the name of Jesus. He was ravaging the church, entering house to house, because that's the way the church met The church didn't meet in a place like this. As we read, they met in houses. He would pursue different individual houses, ravaging to to drag men and women away and commit them to prison. And in his mind, potentially not just a prison, but to a death sentence. That was his goal. Over the chapter 9, and this hasn't this behavior hasn't changed with, with Saul. He still has an inbuilt hatred and a deep distaste for the things of Jesus of Nazareth. And we see Acts nine verse one and I'll read down to verse nine here as we continue the story. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, Saul is continuing, continuing to pursue He's on a course of complete mayhem with a deep hatred for Christians. 
It's just interesting, though, he did not have a deep hatred for God. Because he was a religious zealot. He was a rabbi. He would expound, I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and I'm just doing what God's will is. That's the framework in which Saul is operating. What he is doing, he believes, is honoring God by getting rid of this false heresy, this false prophecy of Jesus of Nazareth. But he gets turned on his head. Yeah, you know, he goes to the elders. He wants, um, I, I guess, uh, commendation from them. He says, I want to make a little trip. He says, I want to make a little trip up to here. And as you can see from Jerusalem, which is down there, up to Damascus is a reasonable distance. It's about 180, 190 kilometers. So this would take some time for Saul to make this trip, but his primary purpose was to head in this direction to see in the synagogues if there was anyone there of the way. This is the first time in in the Bible we hear this term, the way. It's a solely uh, term used by Luke in his writing. He uses it here and and in chapter 19, a couple of times. In chapter 4, 24, a couple of times. And it has a broader sense. It's a whole of life type sense. It's a moral and spiritual viewpoint. It's, it's a way, it's a teaching. And this is how he was describing those who were following Jesus. They were, they were wholehearted in their approach. They, they had a whole of life approach to this. For goodness sake, I've, Saul was even testimony to Stephen stoning. He would die for the cause of the way. So he uses this, this term. I, I, he goes to the, the high priest and says, just give me letters, I need to flush out the way. And if there's any found belonging to the way there in Damascus and, and many, many miles away from Jerusalem, you see... Saul had a a sense that the gospel was spreading. He had a sense that as the church was scattered, as it was persecuted in Jerusalem and, and went out into different parts of the globe, that the power of this message was still spreading. So he wanted to nip it in the bud. He wanted to destroy it. He wanted to deal with it. But then an amazing thing happens on the way to Damascus. Let's read the verses, verse 3 through verse 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground. And though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. And neither ate nor drank. What an amazing account. Does that stir in your heart when you read that? When you see a man of hatred towards the church, a persecutor of the church, turned in a moment as the Lord himself approaches Saul, as the Lord himself and probably what I would think is the the last Christophany type event here. The last major direct approach by the Lord on anybody is struck down. You see, a light from heaven flashed around him and Saul didn't even see what that was because why? He was blinded. He could not obtain or or understand that this is the glory of the risen Savior before him because he was blind. The glory itself and God's holiness, I think we overshadow sometimes, but this is a representation of that light throughout the whole of Scripture. When men are confronted with God's glory, there is only one position. Flat on your face, on the ground. He didn't know who it was. Who are you, Lord? And then in a significant one-liner, which I've just been enjoying thinking through, Jesus says, I am. I am Jesus. Now, I am is a significant name for Jesus throughout the New Testament. If you read the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and life. I am the bread of life. I am etc, etc, etc. There's seven or eight times where this statement relates to Jesus' divinity. And he addresses it here straight to, to Saul again. He says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Don't you know and understand as you persecute the church, you are persecuting me. As you go about rattling the cages of these homes and as you go out trying to drag people back to the prison, you are persecuting me. You see, the church is Jesus's. The church is not Shabu's, mine or John's. The church belongs to Christ. So whenever there is persecution amongst us or or to us or within us by others who don't understand the God we worship. Persecution is directly to God. That should give you great comfort. Why? Because God will vindicate. God will take care of that. It's not our role to vindicate, it's our role to worship. 
thereof to proclaim. This is a, a special post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. It's different from the other resurrection appearances. As we see here, Jesus' full revealed glory. Unlike those who saw him early before he ascended. And then Saul is told what to do. To go, and you'll be told what you are to do. Let's read the next part of the, the chapter. Verse 10. Now there's a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard about this man. I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to, to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Put yourself uh, in a situation... Put yourself in Ananias' situation. The Lord appears to you in a vision. He says, I want you to just uh, wander down to a street called Straight. Which, by the way, is actually still in Damascus today. It's called something different, but it's still there. It used to uh, divide the, the city from east to west. It's a well-known historical city. Well-known historical street. Go down there, and the, the one who is here to persecute you, I want you to actually minister to I want you to go in and lay your hands on him and, and commission Saul for a, a task. You can fully understand Ananias' dilemma here and you can fully understand what he says. It's almost like a double take. A, a Lord, do you really want me to do that? I'm not sure. Hey, Lord, have you heard that he is a murderer of your name? Lord, I'm a little bit uncomfortable about going to see Saul. His reputation has gone before him. 
what did the Lord say to him? And this is a wonderful key in this particular account. The Lord says, Go, for he is chosen. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. That is the purpose, Ananias. Saul has been chosen by me to carry the gospel. It is my plan. Now, Ananias, be obedient to the plan. It's wonderful as you read the other accounts and acts of Saul's conversion, and we'll, we'll briefly look at these. This whole focus on, on why he was chosen comes through. Acts chapter 22. You want to turn there with me? You see, this, this account that we've just read in Acts 9 is a third person account. It's, it's Luke providing details from a third-person perspective. In Acts 22, we have a first-person account. Paul himself testifies to his conversion. So we'll read uh, from the first ten verses because there are some real commonalities, as there should be. He's uh, before men in front of the temple in Jerusalem. This is at the conclusion of his third missionary journey. And he's been asked all sorts of questions. And he says this, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was speaking to them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicily, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamal, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of those who were speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Verse 15, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's Paul's testimony there later on in Acts 26 before Agrippa. He gives a similar brief testimony of how he came to faith in Christ and verse 12 in this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday O king I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me 
And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard the voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering from uh, you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then Paul goes on and said, Therefore, O King, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That helps provide some context of Paul's view of what happened to him on the road to Damascus and, and the, the incredible impact it had for the rest of his life. See, the Lord had set him apart for this. He was chosen. It was conferred by the laying on of hands here because Ananias is incredibly faithful even though he... He slightly grumbles, and I don't use that word in a negative sense. He, he questions the Lord about what his role is. He still is faithful when he goes. He goes and he enters the house and he lays his hands on him so why he can receive his sight. That was the purpose of laying on all the hands here, was that Saul would receive his sight and also to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, laying of hands was a common thing inside Acts. And all the uses tend to point to a, a commission or an association. In Acts 6.6 6 here, when the apostles commissioned the seven, they laid hands on them. When Peter was in Samaria, Peter and John, when the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, it was through the laying on of hands. Ananias here to restore sight to Paul. The church laid hands on Paul and Barnabas as they went out on the first missionary journey in, in Acts 13. And later in Acts, in 20, Acts 28, um, Paul lays hands on someone he heals. On three occasions it relates to and is tied with the Holy Spirit, the reception of the Holy Spirit. Here, we read last week in Acts 8, in Samaria and in Acts 19 when Paul lays his hands on John's disciples so they receive the Spirit. You see, once this happened, once this confirmation occurred, Paul could see. It was immediate. It wasn't progressive. The scales fell off his eyes. I don't know what the scales were. It's, it's, I think it's a metaphor for you now can see. Whether they were literal scales, I'm not sure. But whatever it is, he was blind, but now he could see. He regained his sight. And he, was, he rose and was baptized. And then he started to eat again. He'd been fasting for three days. Trying to work through the aspect of what's going on. You see, all these accounts have the, 
the same basic features. Saul is on his way to persecute Christians. He sees a great light. The Lord immediately says, because you are persecuting the church, you are persecuting me. And Jesus reveals who he is. So what does this tell us? It tells me about God's wonderful grace. You can draw no other conclusion. A persecutor and a hater of God's people is turned around. He goes from persecutor to proclaimer. From persecutor to preacher. From persecutor to follower of Jesus of Nazareth. It's the ultimate example of Jesus saving an enemy. The ultimate example. We see God's power and we see God's election together here. Because he had a plan for Saul that he would be a proclaimer amongst all nations. We see God appear in glory through the resurrected Christ before him, much like the transfiguration. And we see the purpose and the commission, you are to be my witness to the Gentiles. There is no one or nothing beyond God's grace. No one or nothing beyond God's From persecutor to proclaimer. You may be sitting here and you may say, I'm shunning Christ. You are not beyond God's grace. You are not beyond God's grace. You see, Jesus died to save sinners. His grace is sufficient to give you eternal life. Believe and trust in that. God has a plan. In the life of Saul, it was a tremendous plan because the impact of Saul of Tarsus has reverberated throughout the church for centuries. As he became the mouthpiece to the Gentiles. As we read, 25% of the New Testament is written by Saul. God used him in that way to proclaim truth to us. But we see here a wonderful, patient, long-suffering God who turns our enmity our hatred of him to the gift that comes from him. It's by grace you were saved through faith. It's the, one of the most simple messages but the hardest message to comprehend and understand. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. Nothing. It's God's gracious 
gift. You may be here today and you have never experienced that. The Lord can turn your life around. He's turned my life around. I remember as an 11-year-old, I didn't have a vision like Paul or Ananias, but I had a conviction within my heart that I knew I needed to follow Christ and put my trust in him. The Spirit's working on your heart. Don't quench that. Turn in belief today. Move from being an enemy to being a follower of Christ. And the wonderful promises he, he gives. Let's read for the next few verses. I'll quickly summarize these. Verse 19b, for some days he was with the disciples of Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. This is one of the only times in Acts that we read a proclamation of the son of God. It fits clearly with Paul or Saul. Because that's what he came to understand that the one whom I was persecuting, he is the Messiah. The divine one, the I am, the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has not uh, he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? That was man's purpose. God's purpose is different. Man's purpose was to destroy the way, to destroy the name of Christ. But God's purpose was to proclaim his name. And he used the very persecutor who was doing it to proclaim his name. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He was an apologist. He would have used Old Testament scriptures, many of them, to say, this is the Messiah. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Isn't that irony? The persecutor who was going to kill is now being persecuted and killing. Well, not killing, but try to be killed. But the plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. This is about two or three years later. They're still afraid of Paul and his influence. They were hearing and understanding that maybe there was a change. But then the old son of encouragement comes in, Barnabas. He grabs hold of Saul and he says, I'll bring you to the apostles. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, verse 27, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists were the guys that had destroyed Stephen. And Paul was part of that group. He sat there and witnessed it. And now he's gone back into the very cauldron of that hatred and he proclaims Christ. What boldness. But they were seeking to kill him. 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. That's this map here. So he journeyed from here up to Damascus. In the interim period, actually, he went up to Arabia for a couple of years. We read that in Galatians chapter 1. So if you want your historical sort of account of, of what's happening in this three years, you need to bring Galatians in there. And uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33 talks about some of that historical context. But the reality is, he, we, we believe he went up to Arabia. He pretty much got equipped there by the Lord himself. And then he came back into Damascus, preached a bit, got kicked out, comes to Jerusalem, preaches a bit, gets kicked out goes up to Caesarea here on the coast and then he flies up to the flies he boats it up to in Caesarea oh there's meant to be a line there up to Tarsus his hometown so that's what's happening that's what's happening with the life early life of Saul and then we come to this juncture so what's happening in the church while this is going on? Verse 31. So the church to, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. With great persecution, there's great multiplication. For the first time we, we hear, we, we see that you know, Luke is kind of selective in his historical account because this is the only mention of the church in Galilee in the, in the, in the book of Acts. So clearly some of the uh, people Jesus spoke to in Galilee became disciples and became followers and they gathered in a new community. But they had peace. See, comfort and encouragement yields peace. Even though there's pressure and persecution all around, the church itself has peace because Christ is the Prince of Peace. It's His Spirit that gives us peace. It's His fruit of the Spirit that grants us peace in the, in the eye of persecution. See, this community, new community was being strengthened. It lived in the fear of the Lord. It received comfort of the Spirit of God. And with these unusual ingredients, and despite the presence of persecution and rejection by others, the church was being multiplied. God was growing the church. Take great courage, folks. God is in control of the church. It's a lesson we can learn from here. We can take great comfort from the fact that when we walk in the fear of the Lord as, as his followers, when we're being built up, that means gathered together, devoting ourselves to, to prayer, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to fellowship, that we have peace. Because our focus is on the Prince of Peace. What a wonderful experience we read here about Sue. From persecutor to proclaimer. What a wonderful example we hear about the church. As they undergo persecution, they continue to grow in peace and the knowledge of their Saviour. 
Let that be an encouragement to us today. Things are going on around about this world that we don't like, we don't understand, we abhor. Let's take our peace and comfort from our Saviour and from the truth he gives us in his word. I invite the music team to come up and we'll finish our service.